If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, I'm going to continue the message that I started last week. And Romans chapter 6, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 14. And I just want to focus in on the first few verses here. And then uh, later on, we'll look at the rest of the section. But Romans chapter 6, this is the Apostle Paul uh, writing to the, to the Romans. And um, what should we say then? What should we say then? Should we go on sinning so the grace may increase? By no means, no way, if I could put my um, modern vernacular there, no way, Jose, we died to sin. How can we live it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God the Father, we too may live a new life. Verse 5, for we have been united with him in his death, we certainly will also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that the old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin may be rendered powerless, that we no longer be slaves to sin. May God bless the reading of his word. And again, I invite you to pull out those message notes. And can we stand? Can we stand one more time? I'd like us to stand this morning. And uh, I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind joining me in one more prayer. And I like to pray and ask God's blessing upon um, my preaching this morning. Lord, we come before you asking that you'd help me to apply your word today where the rubber meets the road, this 2013. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we've had an opportunity to sing songs again to you and, and, and about you. And, and we just asked, I just asked, Lord, that you would use me and that you would help me to make, again, this word applicable to you. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Did you hear the particular story? Did you hear the story about the young man that was having a conversation with God? There was a young man that was having a conversation with God. And, and this young man said, God, what is a, what is a million years like to you. And God said, a million years to you is like one second to me. The young man thought about that for just a moment. And then he asked God another question. He said, God, what is a million dollars like to you? And he said, God said, a million dollars to you is like one penny to me. This young man thought about that for just a moment and he worked up enough courage and he finally said, Lord, could I have one of those pennies? And God said, in just one second, in just a second, just a second. And the Lord has not promised everybody to be millionaires. He's not promised that everybody's going to be a millionaire. But he has promised that we can be free from the penalty of sin and we can also be free from the power of sin. I want to quickly review where we've been at last week and then I want to look at some more, uh, some more scripture in Romans chapter 6. This past year, I read an autobiography, excuse me, a biography, a biography on George Washington. He was a great military genius, you might want to say, in his limited capacity. He became, as you know, the first president of the United States. When he took over the initial militia to lead the 13 colonies against Great Britain, it was a very, very daunting task. 
he had to shape a ragtag group of militia men with little or no experience, no uniforms, no weapons, get them trained, get them clothed, get them fed, and faced the strongest, the mightiest military might of that day. We're talking about Great Britain. It was a David and Goliath epic story in the making, so to speak. In the middle of it, in the middle of this war with Great Britain, after heavy losses, in the, especially in the southern states, and after losing Boston to the British, and facing the storm of criticism from members of Congress at that particular time, being lonely for his family, left, left him utterly and emotionally exhausted and fatigued. In fact, he wrote in a series of letters, quote, I am bereft of every peaceful moment, he declared in September, adding that he was worried to death all day with a variety of perplexing circumstances. In a series of letters that he wrote to his brother back in Virginia, he said that he was in a black hole of depression. He had said he had lost all comfort and happiness. He had never been in such an unhappy state. Such is my situation that if I were to wish the bitterest curse on an enemy on this side of the grave, I should put him in my place with my feelings. He thought it impossible to finish the war with his reputation intact, and he thought that imminent defeat was right around the corner. But as we know, he and the soldiers and the people of those 13 colonies, they persevered, they continued to fight, and they overthrew what they thought was tyranny and what was slavery, where this dictate of this king was dictating to them how they could live their life, and they did not want to live that way any longer. They overthrew, you might want to say, slavery that they were under. We're going to do some quick review this morning, and I want you to notice that there are three great phases of salvation. Three great phases of salvation. First of all, notice in your message notes, there is justification. There is justification. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that we can be forgiven from the penalty of sin. We can be forgiven from the penalty of sin. We can be forgiven for all of our past sins. And then we read in Scripture, especially in Romans chapter 6, in the book of Galatians, in First and Second Thessalonians, we read about what is called sanctification. This is where we are free from the power of sin. We can live victorious, a victorious Christian life. And then the third phase is what we call glorification. Now, glorification does not happen until we die and go to heaven because that is being free from the presence of sin. All around us, while we're alive, we still face sin. We still sin on occasion. There still is uh, the sin element there. People were tempted. There still is all kinds of sin. But the Bible says in Revelation 21 that when we get to heaven, there's no more sin, there's no more crying, there's no more tears, there's no more pain, and there's no more disease. Now, in chapter 3 of the book of Romans, we saw that every single person not only has what we call the acts of sin, but there's a fact of sin. We call this the carnal nature. And remember Paul was writing in Romans chapter 3, and he said, there is no hope in and of ourselves. He said, there is no purity, there is no spiritual 
accomplishment, so to speak, apart from God's grace. There is nothing there. And like a magnet that is drawn to metal, or metal drawn to magnet, this propensive evil that has been passed from Abraham to Noah to, uh, to the children uh, all the way down through history to the present, we have this problem. As a baby, we are born with this propensive evil. I told you last week that there was an article in Smithsonian Magazine and the, the particular people writing this article, they've done all kinds of major research and they're coming to understand that genetically speaking, we are predisposed toward what we would call sin. And we also commit the acts of sin. And there's nothing in and of ourselves that we can do about this so-called carnal nature. How do I break the power of my old nature? You cannot, I cannot. You cannot break the power of your old sin nature on your own. Otherwise, you would not need God's help through Jesus Christ to do that. Now, the truths that we're going to be talking about today, that we're going to be piggyback on, piggyback on from last week, are very, very important truths. And I find, I don't know why, but a large majority of Christian people are often defeated and frustrated and discouraged and they have no spiritual power in their life. And they just don't understand what we're going to be talking about this morning. They're often ignorant about this particular subject. Have you ever met anybody who has said, I cannot live a consistent Christian life? I cannot live a victorious Christian life. I don't know what you're talking about when you mention the word a victorious Christian life. I just don't understand it. Well, they don't understand Romans chapter 6. Paul says in order to break the power of sin in our lives, the temptation to do what's wrong, you have to know some things and you have to do some things. You have to know some things and you have to do some things. And I'm calling this, that's why my message is entitled, The Facts and the Acts of the Christian Life. The difference is the difference is is the difference between positional truth, positional truth and experiential truth. Stay with me. It's the difference between positional truth and experiential truth. Positional truth is different from what I often experience. Can something be true without you ever experiencing it? Absolutely, we would all agree with that. Can something be true without you ever experiencing it for yourself? Absolutely. I remember my family, my wife's family, Kathy she grew up in Hawaii, and they often talked about the beautiful islands of Hawaii. They were on a couple different islands. And I read documentaries, I saw the movies about Hawaii, but I had never been there. I had never experienced going to Hawaii for myself until a couple years ago. We got to fly over, and we went to Oahu, and we saw Kathy's grandmother, who lived on that island before she died. And then we got to go to the big island, where she spent a lot of time, you know, the big island, Hawaii. And I experienced it for the very first time myself. And all those things they said about those islands were true and even more because I experienced going there myself. Can something be true even though you don't understand it? Even though perhaps it's not your experience? Yes, it can. For hundreds of years, we know that people believe that the earth was flat. We believe, they believed the earth was flat. And it wasn't until Galileo that came along and proved that the earth was round that those people finally had a light bulb that went on and said the earth was round. All those years they believed the earth was flat when it was really round. And I want to suggest to you that there are people, well-meaning Christian people, who have been taught that they cannot live a victorious Christian life. For some reason, they've been taught that they're a sinner, and that they cannot live a victorious Christian life, and that there is no victory whatsoever in the Christian life. 
they are an absolute failure. And yet when we look at 1 Corinthians 10.13, what does it say? No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear because he will always provide a way out. There is always a way out when we're tempted to sin. And we can choose the right way and we can do that on a consistent basis. We don't always have to give in to that particular sin. There is victory in the Christian life. Now, we're talking about positional truth. Now, and yet there are many Christians who say, who, I'll give you another example of this. The Bible says that once you're saved, your sins are completely forgiven, right? Once you're saved, your sins, your past is completely forgiven. And yet how many Christian people, I run into them a lot, how many Christian people do you know still feel guilty? They still feel guilty. Positionally, according to the Bible, the once they say, I, please forgive me, they're forgiven of their sins, but they still feel guilty. God says that in Christ, you are covered with his righteousness and you can have victory over sin in your life. A positional truth is what God says about the Christian life. Experiential truth is when I begin to live the way that God sees me and I begin to act upon what God says. I mentioned last week to you about the Emancipation of Proclamation that happened in the 1860s. And I want to go back there very briefly because I read something else about it. Abraham Lincoln believed that unless the Civil War would be for naught, unless the Emancipation of Proclamation outlawing slavery was passed, the amendment was passed to do that. He said the Civil War would be for naught. And so he did everything he could to pass that particular proclamation to change the amendment. Unfortunately, he died before he could see it being passed. But it was passed. And the news spread clear across the country, especially to those southern states of Georgia, Louisiana, and Mississippi, and Alabama. Slavery is abolished. And yet, for some reason, some strange reason, the majority of those black slaves in those particular states still stayed in their slavery. And this is what I've read that I want to share with you. One particular black slave was asked, after the Emancipation of Proclamation was passed, he was asked this question. He was asked a question. And this is how he responded. He said, and I'm quoting, I don't know nothing about Abraham Lincoln except to say that he set us free. And I don't know nothing about that either. And I call that really, really sad. Sad. If God says some neat things about me and how I can experience victory in my Christian life, is what God says true, even though I may not experience it? Absolutely. If God's word says something is true, but I haven't experienced it, that doesn't mean that it's still not true. How do I experience it? How do I convert something that God says about me into practical life so that I can enjoy the experience? You do it by three ways. First of all, you have to know it. You have to know it. I must know what God has said. How can you act on something if you don't even know it? Number two, I have to believe it. I have to believe it. And number three, I must act on it. I must act on it. And this is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, 
verses 1 through 14. And notice there are key words. These are the key words that we talked about last week, and they parallel what I just shared with you. They parallel what I just shared with you. Notice um, verse 3. No. Don't you know? Uh, verse 6. Don't you know? Uh, verse, verse 9. For we know. What is it that we know? What is it that he's trying to convey to people? In order to become a Christian, God wants you to know that there are several things that you must understand. There are some things that you have to know. Now notice the second key word is in verse 11. He says, count, or he says, consider, or he says, believe, or he says, reckon. These are business terms. These are accounting terms. And notice the third key word is offer or present yourself in verse 13. He uses it three times there. Don't offer yourselves to sin, but offer yourselves, the context tells us, completely to God. Now, these are the facts of the Christian life. These are three fantastic facts that will help you to find freedom and victory from sin. Paul, first of all, begins this, quest, this section with a question. Look at, the, look at the first question. Look at it with me. Verse 1, what should we say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? This is a rhetorical question and notice how he answers he says by no means another translation says no 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 another translation says god forbid absolutely certainly not why because he believes that we've died to sin and this is the first positional truth is is paul saying that when you become a christian you never sin i didn't say that and he doesn't say it we still sin on occasion but we have the victory and we have the power not to sin for extended periods of time. How is that, Pastor Ron? He's saying if you're a genuine Christian, that you will not deliberately keep on sinning. You will not be involved in habitual sin. You will not make a practice of it. If you're really Christian, it's not going to show up in your lifestyle. A person cannot say, I'm a Christian, and therefore there's no change in his or her life. But the fact is, is that he made provision for not only the penalty of sin, but also for the power of sin. When you are tempted, there is a way out. Because God provides you with victory and he provides you with the power to go against the sin and the temptation. Gandhi, that Indian mystic, remember he led the people of India basically out of bondage from the Great, Great Britain. He got their independence through pacifism, through pacifism, through nonviolent pacifism. And they were released. Did you know that Gandhi had a discussion one day with, I think it was E. Stanley Jones. And if you don't know anything about E. Stanley Jones, he was a wonderful, wonderful Methodist preacher and pastor. He was in the conservative branch of the Methodist church, not the liberal Wonderful man, author, spirit-filled man, used of God tremendously wherever he went. He was a missionary in India, and he had a conversation with Gandhi, this great leader and ruler of India. And you know what Gandhi told him in my paraphrase? Gandhi said, you know, I really consider the claims of Christianity. I really seriously consider the claims of Christianity. I think it's great that you could be forgiven of your sins. But all the ministers, all the Christian ministers thus far have told me that I basically cannot be changed and transformed. That I still, at the root of my being, have to do the things that I don't want to do. 
And Gandhi said in so many words, I did not want to embrace a religion or a faith that would not change me at the root of the person that I am. The Bible says we die to sin. We die to sin. And the issue is, will you continue, will you be involved in habitual sin and make an excuse and say that God hasn't given you the power to live a victorious Christian life? And the answer should be, absolutely not. Now, some wag, I call him wag, some crazy guy Paul was responding to here. Because basically this was, the, this was the idea behind that verse that we read. Should we continue on sinning so that grace may increase? Well, he's really answering the question in chapter 5, verse 20. He raises the question about God's grace. It is all of God's grace. But there was some wag who was saying, well, you know, because it's all God's grace and it's not, we're not under the law and, and God forgives us, why not be super sinners so that it will show God's super abundance of grace? Why not just go out and live like the devil and do everything you want because we're under grace after all and because God's going to show his super a grace, grace to us. And you can see how Paul answers that rhetorical question. Should we go on sinning, habitual sinning? Should we do that on purpose? And he says, so that grace may increase by no means. We're presuming on the grace of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian who died right before World War II was ended, basically wrote a book called Cheap Grace. I'm presuming upon God's grace. I'm going to be a super sinner so that it will show his abundant grace. And Paul says, by no means, by no way, no way, Jose. Now I want you to uh, write down, if it's not in your message notes, 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. Not 1 John 1, 9. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. And this is what the Apostle John wrote. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. He's talking about habitual sin. He's not talking about a sin on occasion, but he's talking about habitual sin because God's seed remains in him and cannot go on sinning. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Now again, he doesn't say that you sin, don't sin on occasion, but he's saying basically this. When you are involved in some sort of habitual sin, when you do something wrong, God's conviction is right there, and you don't ignore it, you feel guilty for it, you weep over it, you feel bad about it, and you keep short accounts with God, and you say, God, help me to get out of this habitual sin. You feel bad about it. That's the context. How do I break the power of sin in my life? Three facts. Three facts you have to know. Number one, notice, when I become a believer in Jesus Christ, I place, I was placed in Him. I was placed in Christ. In fact, this phrase, in Christ, is used 120 times in the New Testament. It's the number way we are called Christians. We are in Christ. Second, Second Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, there is tremendous implications here. Basically, here it is. If I could just share it like this in a nutshell. Jesus Christ died on the cross. The Bible says that Jesus Christ was buried in the tomb. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ was resurrected again. Everything that Jesus Christ did on the cross is available for Christians today. Jesus Christ defeated Satan. Would you agree with that? He defeated death on the cross. And he also defeated sin. He did not leave us helpless. The same resurrection power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is available to every single Christian to help us 
live a consistent, victorious Christian life. Not perfect, but a consistent, victorious Christian life as we appropriate what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Amen. Um, And in that baptism that Paul mentions there in verse 3 and verse 4, he mentions the word baptize or baptism, whatever it may be, and we said that that was like a white cloth that was dipped in some sort of red dye. And that being dipped in the red dye, being baptized, not the outward form of baptism, but we're talking about the baptism of the Spirit of the living God, being baptized in the spirit of regeneration, being spirit-filled, that that um, white-colored thing that's dipped is transformed and it is changed. It is transformed and it is changed, speaking about us using that analogy. I was placed in Christ. I was buried with Christ. Baptism says, the baptism of the Spirit says, I died with Christ. And what did Christ die for? He died for our sins. Amen? Amen. Let's go on here. Number two. When Christ died, my old sin nature was crucified with him. You say, what are you talking about? Well, look at verses six and seven. When Christ died, my old sin nature was crucified with him. Look at verses six and seven. For we know that our old self how, how do you read it? Was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless. That we should no longer what? Be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been what? Freed from sin. You don't do it. You don't die. Christ died and you, you appropriate. He has done it for you on the cross and you believe that and you can live that way. Now, um, there's many passages that explain this. When Christ died, my own nature was crucified with him. Many, many passages. Ephesians uh, 4.22 says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be being new in an attitude of your mind and put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. One more scripture. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. Now, I want to share an illustration for you this morning that is imperfect. In fact, every illustration a pastor shares is often imperfect because when you look at these analogies and you look at these stories, you can take them out and they can mean different things eventually. But I think you'll get what I'm saying uh, by using this particular illustration. Whenever I throw a rock into a pond, that rock sinks down because of gravity, right? I throw a rock into a pond and it sinks down. The law of gravity is is at work. And we said that we have this propensity of evil inside of every single person. And it's been passed on from generation to generation, this propensity of evil. And evil, we're drawn to evil because of this propensity of evil that's inside of us. That's what the Bible says. It's carnal nature. Now, according to what the Bible says because of Jesus Christ and because of his death and because of his resurrection on the cross, there is a new power, a new power working within me. And it's like placing a rock on top of a raft. Once I place a rock on top of the raft, it doesn't sink to the bottom any longer, does it? It it doesn't. Did you hear what I said? When I put a rock on top of a raft, it doesn't sink to the bottom. The Bible says that this carnal nature that I'm born with because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, it can be rendered powerless. Powerless. Notice I did not say 
eradicated. A lot of people think that the church of Nazarene teaches that the carnal nature can be eradicated. We do not believe that it's eradicated. It's been rendered powerless. That's what Scripture says. I am in Christ. I am identified with Christ. I am in Christ. And if Christ, if I'm in Christ, I died with Him and I was resurrected with Him, so to speak. And circle again that phraseology that's used there in verse 6, so that it might be rendered powerless. Powerless. And number three, Christ's resurrection has guaranteed our ultimate victory. Look at verse 8 with me. Look what it says. Now if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with Him. The context tells us, live a victorious Christian life, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. Now these are the so-called facts. These are the so-called facts. But unless we act upon these truths, they won't do us any good. Let's say that, let's say that uh, I, got, I got really out of shape. This next year, I gained 100 pounds. I gained 100 pounds, and I had sleep apnea, and I couldn't sleep very well at night, and, and I began to have heart palpitations, and, and I was too weak to even get out of bed and hardly to tie my shoes, and I couldn't hardly bend over, whatever it may be. And the church board here at the John Day Church in Nazareth, they came to me, and they said, Pastor Ron, we want you to take a four-month sabbatical. We want you to take four months off, and we want you to get back in shape. And we're going to give you the time off. So I take the time off, and I go to a cabin someplace, or a retreat someplace, and I spend four months there. And you know what I do? I, I buy a book. I buy this book written by Arnold Schwarzenegger called Pumping Iron. And I begin, to, I begin to read that book, and I begin to study it backwards and forwards, and I study the book, and I, and I meditate on that book. I memorize certain passages of that book. I do all the things that you would think would be necessary, except for one thing. Application. Application. I don't put it into practice. And I, so I come back four months later, and I said, well, I read the book. I studied the book. I memorized certain sections of the book. I meditated on the book. I did all these things. And somebody will look at me and say, but you're still the same as you were before. Why is that? Because you need to apply the truth. I can't say it anyway. You need to apply the truth. Here are the facts. Now we're going to be talking about the acts. We talked about the facts. Let's talk about the acts. Three things you must do. First of all, you have to reckon. You have to believe what God says is true. Look in verse 11 with me one more time. In the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Another term this used means to compute, to calculate. It means to consider. It means to count on it. It means to don't, don't, don't doubt it. It means to believe it. We're not talking about a matter of just pretending. You believe what God's Word says, and you deal with it, you reckon with it, you wrestle it. Is it true? Is it not true? If it's true, then I've got to do something about it. You reckon with the truth. Have you ever heard anybody say, well, I've just got to crucify myself? Or, you've got to die to self. The problem is, is that you cannot crucify yourself. Jesus Christ already crucified Himself on the cross. And He defeated not only 
the penalty of sin, but he, but also he, he released us from the so-called power of sin. Now, you must agree with God. And Paul takes three chapters to spell this out, and it gets a little bit easier to understand once you begin to look through this, but, but uh, let's go on here. And number two, you have to resist. You have to resist. Look at verse 12 with me. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you will obey its lust. In other words, don't let sin go unchallenged in your life. Don't let sin go unchallenged in your life. You must resist. Here's the bottom line. If I really believe that I'm a Christian, if I'm a spirit-filled believer, A, I am in Christ, B, my old sin nature was crucified in the cross, it's been rendered powerless, and C, I no longer have to give in to sin. I have a choice. I no longer am being drawn here and drawn there by the whims of my sinful nature. I have a choice. Again, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Now, how many of you are old enough to remember the Flip Wilson Variety Show. Raise your hand. The Flip Wilson Variety Show. Those of you who are not old enough to remember that, you didn't really miss that much. <laughs> but Flip Wilson was a black comedian, and he used to do a show, and he would play a lady character by the name of Geraldine. And Geraldine would always say, The devil made me do it! The devil made me do it! The devil made me do it! And that was a favorite phrase of Geraldine, the devil made me do it. I want to suggest to you, because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, we're not only free from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin, and we can no longer blame old snaggletooth, because the Bible says that we still have a way out if we choose it, and because that carnal nature has been rendered powerless. Now, People get psyched out by temptation. Did you know that? People get psyched out by temptation. You've been a Christian for 20 years, and one day in your prayer time, the devil puts a thought in your mind, and it's the most ugly thought that you ever thought in the whole world. Where did that come from? I must be a sinner. It freaks me out. Temptation in and of itself is not sin. Temptation is not sin. The Bible says that our minds, the Bible indicates our mind is like an open frequency. We have all of these thoughts that come in our minds. Sometimes they're from the world. They're, sometimes they're from television. Sometimes they're from old Snaggletooth, whatever it may be. And Martin Luther, the great reformer from the 15th, 16th century, he said this. He said, birds will land on your head. There's nothing wrong with birds landing on your head. Having these thoughts because you cannot often control your thought life. But you don't want to allow that bird to make a nest in your head. Temptation is not a sin. And yet, how many people do you know get freaked out because they're having the, all these weird thoughts? I think I told you once before, I was driving on the backside of San Bernardino and I was taking a carload of junior high boys skiing for my son's birthday. Instead of going up the front side to Big Bear, we decided to go to the backside around Palm Springs Way and went around that backside. And if you've ever been on that backside, it's a wee-wee-wee-wee-wee-wee-wee-wee-wee experience. And we were driving along there, and I thought to myself, wow, I could kill all these kids and bury their bodies and nobody would know the difference. And Dwayne knows, he knows I was dealing with junior high boys. That's why I had the thought. 
that thought come from? Bad pizza the night before. I don't know. You, 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 you get all whacked out because you're tempted. Everybody's tempted. Temptation is not sin. It is not sin. What is a good definition of sin? A willful transgression against a known law of God. Write it down if it's not up there. A willful transgression against a known law of God. You willfully know that you're doing something wrong. It's a violation of a scriptural principle, and you know it. You know it. Um, and the devil can put all kinds of thoughts in your mind. What? Uh, uh, okay, let's, see, let's go on here. Some of you guys have been at the beach, and some of you have been at Magoon Lake, and a pretty girl comes along with a, in a two-piece bathing suit, nothing uh, next to nothing bikini, and, and you have several different thoughts. One thought might be, that's a woman. That's not a temptation. That's not a t- even a temptation. Some people think that if they have a sexual desire, that's a temptation. In the first place, you ought to thank God that you recognize that that's a woman. In today's society, you ought to thank God that you're attracted to a woman. Now, that means you're normal. And the devil will give you another temptation. Undress her or something else. Does that mean that you've just sinned because that thought went through your mind? Not at all. What is a sin? When you begin to meditate on it, and when you begin to think about it, and when you begin to roll it over your mind, and then when you begin to act on it. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? A lot of people confuse temptation with sin. A sin is a willfully known violation against a known law or principle of God. Now, um, your intention can be right, but you can have imperfect performance. You say, what are you talking about? I'm almost positive. I think I intensely forgot about this. But if you can believe it, years ago, I bought Valentine's flowers. I bought Valentine's candy. I made reservations for a Valentine's dinner at a restaurant all on February 13th. My intention was right, but my follow-through was imperfect. Did you hear what I said? I believe that you can have a perfect heart, but you're not always going to have perfect performance. You're not always going to have perfect performance. Um, This passage teaches that a Christian does not have to be intimidated by their old carnal nature or by the devil or by their self anymore. I died with Christ. Have you heard anybody say, I know it's wrong, but God will forgive me. I know it's wrong, but God will forgive me. That's what he's talking about here at this this beginning of this passage here. He's saying, don't presume on God's grace. We don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. We have those desires, but the Bible says we should not fulfill them. The third thing that we need to do is render. This is an this is an old word, and it's it's in verse 13. This means to give yourself. This means to offer yourself. This means to give yourself completely. Notice he says, "Don't offer your body to sin, but offer yourself to God." Verse 13: Offer yourself to God as though you've been brought back 
from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Now, render means to put oneself at, at, at God's disposal. It means to consecrate oneself. We talked about this last week, Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. Present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. It's a rendering, it's a giving, it's a consecrating. It's a one-time shot, and it's often followed up by many, many uh, consecrations. Does that make sense? In other words, what he's talking about here is wholesale commitment to Jesus Christ after you become a Christian. Render yourself completely to God. Followed up by many consecrations. And we can't get that wrapped around our mind, but that's the only way that we can explain this particular passage and the way it's written, because it's written in the Aeros tense. Present yourself. Give everything to God. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Now, um, I'm done preaching. I just want to close with a story. If you were here Wednesday night, you heard me share a little bit about this particular story. I have a favorite song, and uh, Jamie found out about it, and she had to sing it almost every single night, and we, we did sing it this morning. It's a, it's a favorite hymn. It wasn't always my favorite hymn, but let me give you the background, how it became one of my favorite hymns. All of us are familiar with Jeanette Oakey's book, the series Love Comes Softly. Most of us are familiar with that. Well, did you know that Michael Landon Jr., the son of Michael Landon Sr., he made a number of movies based upon those books. And Love Comes Softly, the movie version, I saw a number of years ago. And if you're not familiar with the books, or if you are, let me just review a little bit. You have two primary characters in the first book. You have, you have Clark and you have Marty. Clark is a farmer that has a little girl and tragically his wife has died. Clark would be considered a man's man in the best sense of the word. He is physically capable of doing anything. He is independent, but he is loving and kind. He has an intimate relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. He's a committed Christian man and he's got the fruit of the Spirit in his life, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. But his wife has died tragically and he realizes that he has to find a mother for his little girl that's left. Enter Marty. Marty is a 18, 19, 20-year-old young lady. She's made her way out west with her husband, and her husband has died tragically on the trail. She comes into this little community. She's bereft. She doesn't know what to do. She's beside herself. And all of a sudden, she meets this lady, and this lady has a suggestion. She said, there is a man by the name of Clark Davis who is looking for a mother for his child, and he will make special arrangements with you. She said, special arrangements? What are you talking about? So they meet, and Clark lays it on the table. He says, we don't have to have any type of marriage relationship. If it happens 
and we grow to love one another, that's wonderful. But I want you to know that after a year, if you want to go back home, you will be free to go back home and I will pay for your way back home. But I want you to take my little girl with you. I realize my little girl needs a mother more than she needs a father. And Marty is bewildered by this arrangement. She's bitter. She can't imagine losing her husband and getting married right away to another man. And it sounds strange to her, but she doesn't have any other arrangements. So she moves into the back room, and she and Clark begin to cohabitate together, but not in a marriage relationship, you might want to say. Over a period of time, Marty, who doesn't know anything about God, goes to church with Clark. She begins to hear other people talk about God the Father and what it means to make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. In the meanwhile, Clark is falling for Marty. He's attracted to this young lady. He can't help but to be attracted to her. He's lonely. And, but he does everything within his power to make her comfortable, to make her happy. He does special things for her. And he works hard as his farmer. And she cooks and cleans, but there is no marriage relationship. And she is still bitter, and she's working through all of this loss of her first husband. But she begins to watch Clark, and she begins to see that there's something different about his life. And one particular time, she follows Clark up to where Clark has his daily devotions. And early in the morning, on a bench up there, Clark prays out loud, and he reads the Bible every morning. And in one particular moving scene, he begins to sing in a beautiful baritone voice, Come, thou fount of every blessing. And then he gets to verse number two, and he says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. I raise my Ebenezer. That's a strange word. You go back in the Old Testament, and you find out it's not used very much. I can only find one time, one reference. And it was used because Samuel, who was a prophet of God, led the people of Israel in victory against their mortal enemy. And Samuel afterward said, Here I raise my Ebenezer. What? What is that? Here I raise my memorial stone translated the Lord has helped me to win a victory. <laughs> the whole song talks about a deeper experience with God. Romans 6 talks about a deeper experience with God. Do you have your Ebenezer? Do you have your Ebenezer? Can you go back and say, that's my sacred memorial. That was the time that I gave my heart and life and completely everything to God. You say, Pastor Ron, what happens when we do that? God does something special in our life. 
this passage of Scripture was written to Christians. Written to Christians. Not non-believers. Would you pray with me, please? Maybe somebody would say, Pastor Ron, I am intimidated by the devil and by my old sin nature. And maybe some of these thoughts have been in your mind, I'll never be able to change. I cannot be a consistent Christian. I'll never get control of that area of my life. You just feel like you can't break the power of sin in your life. The temptation is too strong. You can break it. But you can't do it on your own. Romans 6 teaches us three very important truths that you need to know. You need to believe and you need to act on. Number one, thank God right now that when you became a believer, you were placed in Jesus Christ. Maybe you don't understand it, but just say, Lord, I agree that I was put in Christ. Two, when Christ died, my old sin nature, the power over sin was given to me. Jesus Christ defeated sin, Satan. Thank God for that. We know their old self was crucified with him so that sin might be rendered powerless. And thank God and thank Christ for his death and for his resurrection power. I would invite you to pray a simple prayer in your heart to make a present of your life to God, to consecrate yourself, to give yourself completely to Him, to render yourself, as the Scripture says to do, to present yourself as a living sacrifice. Just say it to Him quietly in your heart. Jesus Christ, I give you my mind, I give you the present of my heart, my life, my ears, my hands, my mouth, my goals, my aspirations. I present myself to you as a living sacrifice. I mean it, Lord. I give you everything that I am. And I stand on faith and believe that you want to give me all of yourself. And I thank you that sin will not be my master and that because I'm under grace, you will give me wings, so to speak, to break the gravity of old nature, of the old nature. Thank you, Jesus. I want to thank you, Lord. Thank you for the freedom that you promise. It's ours. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. If I could please have our ushers come forward at this time.
Amen. Thank you, Jamie. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this offering and thank you for the opportunity we have to worship this way. In Christ's name we pray again. Amen. If I could please have uh, Eric and Jamie and Roger and Dollar come forward at this particular time. And uh, if you would, right, right there, yeah. Come on forward, Eric. <clears throat> on my left, this is Roger and Darla Derrick. They've been attending our church for two years now. Uh, they've been married a number of years. They didn't give it exact many years, but <laughs> they have no children living at home. Uh, all their grown children are out of the house. Roger works at ODOT, Oregon Department of Transportation, maintaining roads, and uh, he belongs and works in this John Day section here. Darla is our preschool teacher, one of our preschool teachers here at our church in Sunshine Preschool, and uh, all the kids love her, all the parents love her. She does a wonderful job there. Darla has been to our church, uh, been to church all of her life, but really committed her life completely to the Lord in 1980. In 1991, Roger did the same. He was saved. And on June of 1993, they were both baptized in the public profession of faith. And in February of 2013, they completed the Discovering the John Day Church of Nazarene membership class. They were drawn to the John Day Church of Nazarene because of loving people like Dwayne and Tracy Andrews and Robin and Bob Pugh, who invited them to attend. They are currently involved in ministry. Roger's on our praise team and Darla with teaching, are they? and Darla wants to be involved uh, 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 in mission trips in the future. She's begging Roger to go on mission trips, he says. <laughs> on my right over here, this is Eric and Jamie Lupin. They've been attending our church for about one year. Um, they have one child at home, which is Paige. Eric is in college. He's working at a bachelor's degree in, in psychology, and uh, Jamie's retired. In 1996 and in 1993, they committed their life to Christ. And in 1996 and 1997, they were baptized as a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And in February of 2013, they completed the membership class for our church. They were drawn to the John Day Church in Nazarene because the Lord drew us, they said, and they, they were members of a Nazarene church in Stockton, California previously, where they both got squared away in, in their Christian life. They are currently involved in ministry as, a, as worship team members, and uh, Jamie would like to be involved in women's ministry or to be some sort of retreat organizer. If you could turn and face me at this particular time, guys. Having received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and been baptized and being in agreement with the the statements and strategy and structure of our church and now being led by the Holy Spirit to unite with our church family. In doing so, you said you committed yourself to God and to the other members to do the following. You said that you would protect the unity of our church by acting in love toward other members, by refusing to gossip and resolving conflicts uh, with others, by following your leaders. You said that you would share with the responsibility of the church by praying for its growth, by inviting the unchurched to attend, by warmly welcoming those who visit, you said that you would help serve the ministry of this church by discovering your gifts and talents, by being equipped to serve by your pastors, by developing a servant's heart. And you said that you will help support the testimony of the church by attending faithfully, by living a growing and godly life, 
and by giving regularly. Would you please kneel here on each side, if you would do that, please. And I'm going to ask some of our church board members, if you wouldn't mind coming and laying hands on uh, these folks over here and these folks over here, and we're going to pray for them. And let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Roger and Darla, and I thank you for Eric and Jamie. Thank you, Lord, that they made a commitment to you years ago, and thank you that their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And thank you, Lord, that they're a part of our church, and they want to be formal members of our church. And we recognize that this morning. They're not only part of the universal church of God, but they want to be part of the local church. And we pray for them. We pray for them. We lay our hands on them. And we pray, Lord, in the days and weeks and months and even years ahead, that you will protect them and their commitment that they made to you and to our church family, that you would help them to grow in, 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 in favor with you and with other people, that you would bless their ministries, and that you would use them in significant ways to exercise leadership for the kingdom of God through the local church of the John Day Church of the Nazarene. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for them. For it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would it be okay, folks, if you went back to the very back and you formed a line back there, uh, Eric and Jamie and Roger and Darla, if you mind just being out there by the open doors out there, and as, they wait, as they're making their way out there, folks, I'm wondering this morning that uh, as you go out this morning, if you could greet them and if you could congratulate them for being new members in our church and if you would just give them your blessing and say, praise the Lord, thank you and uh, for doing that and whatever it may be, they'll be out here. So greet them on the way out if you would do that this morning. Let's stand, shall we please? Now may the Lord bless you, and may the Lord keep you, and may the Lord shine his face upon you, and may the Lord give you his peace, and may we be reminded that we can only be free from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. May it be, Lord, may it be. For it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray, go with the Lord, he goes with you, amen. Hey, you guys. Did you turn your mic off? Oh, no. <laughs>